0: Welcome to the Next Chapter Podcast. I am your host Veronica Moss, and today we're joined by Corey Martin, the founder of the Recovery Revolution. Corey is a codependency recovery coach, which means that she helps the loved ones of the people who struggle with addiction in a new and revolutionary way. This is not my mother's Al-Anon. Welcome, Corey.
1: Hi. Thank you. This is fun.
0: Yeah. Thanks for Good being be here. here. So I discovered you on Instagram. And I attended your free workshop, Our Role in Recovery. And it really opened my eyes because I was a firm believer in tough love and detachment. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. you're on your own. I don't know. And mm-hmm. so going to your workshop, it kind of opened my eyes where I'm like, well, maybe that doesn't always work. You know, <laughs> It doesn't always work. <laughs> I do come from a background of an alcoholism in my parent and in my ex-husband and in my current husband who is recovering right now. So this is a topic that I'm very interested in. So if you nice. don't mind, before we Good. get started, do you mind speaking on your own experience and why you decided to start a coaching program on recovery for the non-addict?
1: Sure. So a, back, a little background on me and my credentials, as we'll call them. So my job, my day job before I started the recovery revolution was I was a comedian. I was a traveling vaudeville comedian, which means nothing to anybody on the face of the earth, except for those of us who know what that means. So I had my own show. I took it around to different festivals and would perform it. And that was my primary source of income that I supplemented with other gigs. I did background work and stuff. Like I lived in LA for a really long time, but chasing the comedy dream at that time. And the only other thing that comedians know As well as, if not maybe better than comedy, is how to deal with people who are struggling with addiction and mental illness. Uh, The comedy community, and that just as an industry, addiction, as pretty much everyone knows, follows comedians around. Some of our favorite comedians, we lose to overdoses, we lose to their addictions because part of having that brain that's able to see the world in a different way and is so attached to and like passionate about making people laugh and making other people happy, part of that includes sacrificing of yourself and just a lack of that self-worth that would keep someone on the straight and narrow path so as comedians we all most of us and i say all but yeah really all of us have some history of early childhood experiences that have affected us in such a way that it's made our worldview a bit more interesting and a bit more unique right and that's how we're able to reach for the absurd or the joke that no one else thought of and it's because from a very young age we were experiencing the world in a different way usually from a traumatic background. Jimmy Carr actually said this on a podcast that he guested on that I love the way he said it he said when a lot of people ask comedians about like grief and stuff and like what their depression is and whatnot and he said the more apt question to ask is which of your parents was sick and that's a really common experience, whether that sickness is another addiction or an actual illness. So many comedians experience like issues with their parental dynamic, like the issue, like the relationship between themselves and their parents. And when that relationship isn't healthy, that can affect your sense of self. It affects your self-esteem. It affects how you function as a human being and whether or not you're functioning in a healthy, optimal, or even like base level functional way. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, in the early stages of the pandemic, it would have been in March. My very last performance in the year of 2020, before the pandemic and all the lockdowns, was on March 14th. The next mm-hmm. day, LA County lockdown. The mm-hmm. next day, I was planning on driving back to my hometown of Kansas City because I had been staying there for a while. And I was in LA where I had lived for a long time and just happened to be there when everything got locked down. And I was like, well, I guess I'm staying put. And I was locked down with a partner who struggled with drinking, and he'd struggled our entire relationship. But I had been working for a really long time on my own healing, my own process of showing up better in my life, showing up better for myself. I had learned basically all of those basic skills you learn in like life coaching school or as you go through those processes. I'd already mm-hmm. worked on all of that stuff. I'd been through therapy. I'd been through some coaching programs. So I was pretty familiar with how do I manage my own personal development and function healthily as a human being. I had, I don't want to say I nailed it, but I was doing quite well as an individual. He was Mm -hmm. not, he was really struggling. And it was during this time of being locked down where we were in direct influence of each other, where there was no, we had no external social influence, right? We were locked down. It was you stay in your pod. It's just you and your immediate circle and you're quarantining together. That was where I was actually able to see major shifts in how my behavior affected his addiction. Now, for the first few months, off the rails, spiraling out, things were not working, but I stayed firm to how I knew I needed to behave, how I knew I needed to function. I kept my boundaries pretty solid. I don't want to get too hard into boundaries because I think a lot of people teach them in an unhealthy way, but I was pretty firm on boundaries. I knew when to be where, I knew how to take care of myself, and I was doing so effectively, and I was having a really good time. I loved that first month of the pandemic when everything was shut down, because I was like, oh my gosh, I don't have to talk to anybody. I can stay in here, I can read, I can listen to podcasts, I can do all the stuff I like doing, because I am really introverted at heart. I'm technically, like if it were Myers-Briggs, I'm technically like an ENFP, but I love my me time so much. So I loved that, that month of being at home. He did not handle it, but by being in close proximity together, my power of influence won out because it was stronger and more functioning. And in that month was actually the first month in his entire life that he decided, yes, I'll go to the hospital. Yes, I'll go to therapy. Yes, I'll go to rehab. And I firmly believe that if it wasn't for the pandemic, specifically in our relationship, I don't think that would have happened. However, I was able to see in that sort of, it was almost like a scientific study in my own life, right? We got to be our own little lab rats where I got to see in a controlled environment, what happens when the sober partner does the work first? Mm -hmm. What happens when the sober partner does the work first? And I I will never forget the moment we were sitting on the couch and he was intoxicated at the time, but he had a moment of lucidity Mm -hmm. and he turned to me and he said, I am so proud of you. I am so proud of you for everything that you've done. Cause a year before I had quit drinking and he was starting to notice that he saw that he was struggling and he is still unhappy and drinking. And I was happy and doing well. He sees that he says, I'm so proud of you. And the very next day he went to rehab. Wow. So the cool thing is I got to do that in my life. And then I got to experience that replicated with my clients. So the process that I went through myself, that I took myself through over the course of probably two years ish was the length of my personal development journey. That's about the amount of time I took. I spent close to $14,000 kind of piecemealing all the different things I thought might help, going on retreats, taking classes, therapy, books, courses, all of that stuff. Lots of that, I just dove into it. And the traveling, I traveled a lot. I was just go, okay, I got to go here and learn this from this person. I got to go here and have this experience. The amount of money that I spent was pretty ridiculous when I think in hindsight, but to me, it was worth it.
0: it, And
1: when I realized that... Me learning all of that stuff did have a positive effect on him, a more positive effect than all of his friends who cut him out of their lives, than all of his exes who said, hey, we're done and I can't talk to you ever again, to his bosses that fired him and said, hey, because of your drinking, you're not allowed back here and, we, and we're and we done. All of those experiences exacerbated the problem. But me showing up in a different way was the key that was able to lead him in a path toward recovery. And now that I've seen that happen, not with me, but with my clients, I know that it's something that works. And it's not even something I can say, well, it might work for you. It will probably work for you. Obviously, you're not the only influence in their life. There are situations where you do everything right and it's a bigger monster than you can possibly fight. But I've seen it happen over and over where the person who is not struggling with addiction, but is struggling with codependency and struggling with enabling and doesn't understand how they should be reacting and how they should be interacting. They get their proverbial ish together. (laughs) Be careful Mm -hmm. with language. I don't know what you're. Oh, you're good. You're good. It's okay. All right. Well, then they They get their shit together. Want to be. (laughs) All right. So, so that's the pattern that I've been able to see over and over is that when the partner gets their shit together, it's not long following that their addicted loved one is able to start making changes. And so that's my background and why I started this because with the amount of money and the amount of time that I spent and just the spaghetti throwing at a wall, like, well, is this gonna work? Well, maybe I should try al Well, maybe this therapist is the person for me. Well, maybe I need to dive down this spiritual path and, oh, nope, that was a cult. Like how many times you do things like that, just looking for a solution and you don't really know what's gonna help you. When I realized I'm not the only person in this situation. There are so many people just like me who are probably quarantined with someone in addiction, who are losing their minds, not knowing what they could or should be doing. And so the pandemic was really what made me inspired and feel really passionate about this work and know that this is something that other people need to learn and they should be able to learn it for a price point that doesn't cost them multiple years or even decades of their life and tens of thousands of dollars that shouldn't be.
0: Yeah, that sounds very different from what I was taught because I do have a certification in drug and alcohol counseling. And I got it to complement my psychology degree. And when I was in the program, it was kind of like I was an outsider, right? And they kept telling me, you're not addicted. You are not an addiction. You're not an alcoholic. You don't understand us. And it was really weird. And it was that comment that I'm like, well, maybe I don't understand it. Anyway, this was 20 years ago. And it's always been a topic that I come back to, and for some reason, i continue to attract them. <laughs> I continue mm-hmm. to, well, maybe I don't attract them. Maybe I am attracted
1: to them, it's, right? It's an acquired taste. I <laughs> say so that you develop a taste for it. Like once you've had it, you're like, oh, that's not so bad. Yeah. It's not the so bad. The Dare program bad. does not prepare it was us for bad. It. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we were taught detach, tough love, send them to rehab, completely ignore them, cut them out of your life. And if they make the changes, then you can bring them back into your life. Right. And so just a little bit of background on me. I left my first ex-husband because he was addicted, alcoholic, women, cheating, lying, all of it, all of it, all of it. And long story short, I'm with my current husband who repeated that pattern with me and I repeated it with him. And so I did that whole tough love. You know what? I'm done. If you want to go to rehab, I don't even care. I just walked away and he did all the work and came back. And I'm like, you know what? You did a lot of work on your character. I'm going to give this a chance. However, I was still stuck on that tough love, my way or the highway, no sympathy. I don't care type of thing. Non-teaches or not teaches, but usually the talk of encouragement is if they're sprawled out on the floor and they're not eating, that's fine. Walk away, let them be the way that they are and just go on with your life and if they recover great, if they don't, you can still continue with your own life. I never thought that was very good advice. I went to Al-Anon with my mom a few times and I'm like, this is just not for me because it's venting, which is cool, but there's no real help. And then I try therapy and I'm like, okay, the therapist just doesn't understand. And they want me to go right back into Al-Anon and him go right back into AA and it's just not helping. right? And now I have adult children where my son is schizophrenic and he self-medicated. So now he's in addiction. So now it's double whammy and fearful for my oldest daughter as well, because she has mental illness as well. And I'm like, okay, please don't start drinking. Please don't start doing drugs. Please don't try to self-medicate. And I'm right back in that. If you don't go to rehab, we're done. I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to give you money. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. My son went back to rehab. My daughter's still out there. And so now I don't really know if she needs rehab or not. I'm just saying you need to do something with your life. Anyway, point being, I attend your course and I'm like, okay, maybe this isn't right. (laughs) (laughs) What is your course? How is it different from the teachings of AA and Al-Anon?
1: So... Actually, I actually, while you were saying that, I was listening, but I had to write something down because you said something about tough love, the whole my way or the highway thing. And I'd say the biggest difference between the way that my program functions and the way that Al-Anon functions is that I would call Al-Anon a codependency community. I don't think it's a support group. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, I don't think that they help you to heal codependency. Mm -hmm. I think they know a lot of the rhetoric around what codependency is. I think they know how to talk about it. I think they know how to share platitudes, but I don't think that most people who attend Al-Anon and even most people who lead them, now this is most, this is not all, there are some groups, there are some fabulous groups. If you're lucky enough to live in a city that is that has an Al-Anon group that is led by someone who is truly healed and wise and helpful, that's great. Keep going to that group. But I speak for people who've attended Al-Anon and have thought exactly what you did. This doesn't seem right. We're venting, but are we learning? Have we changed these habits? Have we shifted out of this type of thinking? And the problem with Al-Anon is that it is, are you familiar kind of with the Jungian shadow concept of Carl Jung's shadow? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I I know you are. I was like, how do I, okay. How do I make sure I say this in a way that everyone understands? So tough love is the shadow of codependency. Okay. It's not an absence of codependency. It's the negative manifestation of codependency. Tough love is the most aggressive and disconnected, emotionally disconnected form of manipulation and control to make someone behave in a way that you want them to or else. Okay. And that is a form of codependency. So Al-Anon teaches you how to go from being soft people-pleaser codependent to aggressive Machiavellian codependent that's not an improvement that doesn't help you to actually heal the part of you that thinks you can control other people okay the part of you that has an expectation that other people will do what you want them to do that's what we have to heal in codependency is this idea that when we see someone doing something wrong we can step in and make them change right there is no step in and make them change There's no step in, and if you don't, then I will. No, it's you may not, and I will, because these are my standards. If we're sitting on our standards, instead of in this idea that we are responsible in some way for managing and controlling the way someone else behaves, that's a healthy place to be. It's healthy to function based on your standards, your principles, and your values, right? That's, that's the life coach one on right? Mm-hmm. Let's live up to our values and let's make sure we know our non-negotiables and relationships, yada, yada, yada. Right. But in, inside of these codependency support groups, whether it's CODA or Naranon or Al-Anon, sorry, I sort of slurred that Naranon as in like a narcotics anonymous, but right. partners in all of these groups, because they are volunteer oriented, they're volunteer led, and they don't have a scientific basis for any of their teachings they're not really supporting people in pragmatic and functional ways that help them to heal long term it's just a group it's a group of people who have a shared interest and that shared interest is having a partner with an addiction and honestly you are you know the whole you are the average of the five people you spend the most time around if you mm-hmm. want to not be codependent anymore one of the worst places you can be is in a codependency support group where you are surrounded by people who are exactly struggling with what you're struggling with on a regular basis,
0: right? And you think so, support, but it's yeah, not. It's, it
1: is so. So it is support. It right. is support. It is in, support. in your habit of codependency. It supports right. you in maintaining the habit of your codependency, and it helps you to optimize that codependency. But the mm-hmm. goal isn't to optimize codependency. The goal is to eradicate codependency, to heal codependency, to look for what is inside of me that makes me want to control other people. What's inside of me that makes me think I know better than they do? What's inside of me that thinks that I can see them better than they see them? And there is a truth to that when you love someone in addiction, we see their patterns. Yeah. So we do see what they're doing and they may not see the outward manifestation of what they're doing. But where we get overconfident and hubris takes us down is we see what they're doing and then we think we know better instead of we see what they're doing and then we say, why are they doing it like that? Why are they doing it like that? What's causing this behavior? And if I want to support them in not engaging in this anymore, how do I need to show up to cut that chain, to break that pattern? Because you can. If they're behaving in a certain way because... They have a trauma history that involves, you know, being abandoned. One of the worst things you can do is throw them on the street. That confirms their assumption that they will be abandoned. One of the better things you can do is be able to love them unconditionally, but with standards and boundaries for yourself. That's something they haven't experienced. That's something they don't know is possible. Yeah. and something they don't believe about themselves. They don't believe that they are worthy of connection and love and relationships. So if we can decide, hey, you are worthy of those things and I will give them to you and I will take care of myself. Anyone listening to this that has a background in comedy is going to hear how many times I'm saying and and they'll be like, that is improv. Improv, the number one rule of improv is yes anding. Take what you receive from the other people on stage and you don't say, no, we're not doing that. You say, okay, and then you take it somewhere else. You take it in the direction they gave you or you can turn a spin on it But you don't take it and throw it in their face. And that's a lot of what we're taught. A lot of what we're taught socially when it comes to addiction is to take their addiction, take what they're struggling with, take how they're feeling, and just throw it back in their face and say, you deal with that shit. I'm not doing it. Fuck that. That's you. That doesn't help us create a more connected, a more conscious, and just a better functioning society. So for me, this isn't just about me and my relationships or even my clients and their relationships. This is about the society that I live in and me wanting it to work for any of us.
0: No. Yeah. That's interesting. It's just, like I said, it's very eye-opening because for 20 years, that was my method. For 20 years, it worked three times, not with my first ex-husband, not with my dad, not with other people. It worked with my husband. It worked with my son. No, it just worked twice. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and that's their fear, fear of being abandoned. And I encouraged, I guess I solidified that fear because I said, okay, we're done. And I was very blocked from everything. Don't call, well, not my son, but my husband. I'm like, okay, I'm going to block you from everything. I'm going to block you from contacting me, everything, everything. And we shared a daughter at that time. We shared our first daughter at that time. And he would tell me, I need to call you, long story short. But I was like, you're, it's just all bullshit. And I was very aggressive. You're bullshitting me. You're lying to me about this. I know that's not what you're doing. You Stop telling me lies. And it was just, it was a constant, like just cutting it down. Cause it was bullshit on top of bullshit. And I'm like cutting it down, cutting, it. Yeah. but it was mm-hmm. so angry at the Mm -hmm. same time. So to me, it was like, why does he even want me back? I'm
1: so mean now. And I'm not
0: (laughs) naturally mean, I'm very nice, but when- Right,
1: most people aren't naturally mean. We become mean as a result of conditions that lead us to that as our default coping strategy. How do I manage this experience? What do I have to do to manage this? What's working? Okay, getting angry seems to be working, so I'm just going to keep getting angry. It is my goal to just stay safe, then okay, I'm just going to get angry and make sure I keep everyone away from me so I'm safe. That's a lot of the work that we do inside of my program. Now, I want the disclaimer, I'm not a therapist, I am a coach. So I teach the tools that any individual needs to be able to do the work they need to do on themselves. I'm not going to dig around in somebody else's brain, I don't need to know anything about your trauma, I don't need to give you the insight as far as that goes. I encourage my clients to get therapy if that's what appeals to them, but it's not required and you can still get results without it. You can do all this work on your own. That disclaimer aside, the work that we actually have to do is looking at not just our behaviors, but the motivation behind our behaviors. Why are we doing the things that we're doing? And are those motivations sound? Are we using sound logic? Or are we using old sort of algorithms that are just programmed in there that are just still running? from the past experience that taught us that it worked. But Mm -hmm. anymore, we look at it and we put it out on paper and we say, oh, this doesn't logically follow. Once we can logically debunk our behavior and not just our behavior, but the why behind the behavior. Because it's easy to say like, hey, does it make sense that you would do that? No, it doesn't make sense that I threw a lamp across the room, but I did that. So, okay, Mm -hmm. why did you throw the lamp across the room? Let's break that down. And if that doesn't logically follow, that's an easier way to sort of debunk those subconsciously programmed assumptions that we're driving on, we're running on those things. And when we can bring those out into the forefront and look at them like on paper, not even kidding, you write it down and you say, Mm -hmm. Hey, does this make sense? Your brain then gets to kick in your conscious mind. Your prefrontal cortex gets to chew through all that stuff and say, this doesn't make sense. Here's what would make sense. It will be almost impossible to unsee what you see there in your behavior patterns. Once you're able to break it down and see why did something that wasn't great and by why i don't mean why because of your mom or because of your childhood trauma why because of the assumptions that you have because of the beliefs that you're holding on to the assumption that yelling gets you what you want the assumption why in
0: that moment not why why in in that
1: moment yeah not it's not why and that's the thing that's the thing about trauma a lot of people will focus on trauma Mm -hmm. especially in therapy i don't personally i don't recommend therapy for trauma for the most part but A lot of people will focus on the past and let's uncover the past and talk out those experiences. But what really matters in trauma is those triggers are occurring now. Those are happening right now and they are, they're referencing a trauma, but you don't have to talk about the trauma to discuss the trigger and the process that trigger takes you through and what that trigger is based on. It's based on certain assumptions and based on certain beliefs and being able to look at that. Instead of looking at what happened originally, what, what happened originally can re-traumatize you if you talk about it too much. Right. But looking at it, doesn't make sense. Yes. It gets you in the loop of, okay, well, I got to keep going to therapy because I'm traumatized. And then you go to therapy and you get re-traumatized. It can be really unhealthy for people. And then they don't understand why they're not getting better. But the two things you have to deal with when it comes to trauma are your nervous system and your beliefs. Okay. And you don't have to know anything about your history in order to get to the root of those two things Mm -hmm. because yes it happened historically but it's affecting you right now and right now is where we work with it and that's what we do inside of the program is we focus on how do we pay attention to what is happening right now how our behaviors right now are affecting our lives right now and whether or not the things we're doing right now is moving us forward toward the future that we want that's the, I mean, that's the major difference between coaching and therapy, really, yeah. is therapy likes to dig around in the past and coaching is more of a navigational process forward.
0: Right, right. So no, that's yeah. the big,
1: the big thing, different, the big difference, honestly, between my program and like Al-Anon is Al-Anon gives you a place to vent. You said that, that it's a place to to vent about the problem, but the problem that you're venting is the past. It doesn't give you a place to discuss, dissect and restructure now and future.
0: Right, right. No, yeah, I get it. I hear it. And I'm just like, I have to keep going back. I'm like, okay, well, I was raised by an alcoholic. I married an alcoholic. I married another alcoholic. And so I'm thinking here and it's okay. So I'm repeating patterns. There's trauma there. And I decided to take the counselor's way. And I thought it was working for me. Honestly, it worked for me because of my ex-husband. So it, there's so mm-hmm. much going on. But now that I'm noticing with my current husband, he did the work, he did it, he's doing the work, but I'm still getting re-triggered and I'm feeling like I'm only getting re-triggered because I'm still dealing with my son. And then his things that he's doing, I'm like, wait, is this back like when you were drinking because I'm being triggered because it seems like you did this in the past. So I'm like constantly Mm -hmm. like going back to the past. Like, well, what do I need to be aware of? What is it that you're doing right now? And it's driving Mm -hmm. me crazy. Right? So I know that you were talking about your program, but just very quickly with me, I'm doing more emotional abuse. And Uh I took that same route where it's, I'm just going to focus on me. You're doing, you're doing, I can't control it. I don't care. I can't control it. So I'm just going to focus on me. And that, yeah, that is making a huge difference in everybody in my life where it was like, I felt like I had to be rescuing everybody. Tell Mm the story a lot. As a five-year-old, I was in charge of daddy. Daddy's getting Mm -hmm. out of hand, go make him eat something, make him lay down, take him to the car. As a five-year-old, all the way until I was 25, when I said, you know what? I already have kids. I'm already divorcing an alcoholic. I'm not going to come back here and reparent my dad again. And so I had stopped. So, but for 20 years that was my role. And everybody would contact me. They would call me, Hey, your dad's passed out on the grass over there. Go get him. You know what? No, I'm not going to do it anymore. And so I noticed that once I started, just, I'm just going to focus on me and what I need to do. And not in a selfish way. It's just more like, I'm not going to be running towards you when I got things to do. You know, you can figure it out later and I'm going to focus on me. And so I'm noticing that that is working better. And you said that that's part of your program as well. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. what more can you tell us about your program? Like, would you say you can overcome codependency or is it something that you have to deal with on a daily basis? What would you say?
1: So that's a real big philosophical question. So do I think you can, do I think an individual in a vacuum can overcome codependency? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Do I think that it's possible in Western society for any woman, especially, to completely divorce herself from codependency? No, I don't. I think that our entire society is founded on sort of a codependent dynamic, especially with the social movements throughout the past 100, 150, 200 years. When it comes to women, we have been trained Mm -hmm. to function in a certain way. And we've even been trained to believe that as we improve, men have to then improve. Men have to step up too. It's your job now to do this, and if you're not doing this, then you're wrong. We have not yet learned to be responsible for ourselves. In our entire society, we have not yet learned to be responsible for ourselves and then to help others. We have learned to focus on ourselves from a selfish perspective, right? So the opposite of what you were talking about, where we focus on ourselves, like we boss up, we girl boss, we do the whole thing. We get the manicures and we get the extensions and we focus on us and what makes us feel good in the social context with other women. And then when other people need something, we say, not my problem, not my problem anymore. I bossed up You got a boss up now. And that's not healthy. It's not healthy and it's not human, is the problem. That's not a natural way for human beings to function. Human beings naturally function in societies, in small community groups that support one another. And the smallest structure of one of those community groups is a friend group and a family. So within your friend group and your family, if you are functioning, like such an individual that you can't take responsibility for how your actions affect others for the moments in which other people may need your help. And it is your time to step up. If you're not able to manage that dynamic, which feels like a paradox, but it's really just a duality self and other at the same time, concentric circles, right? It's happening. You saw the Venn diagram and the, uh, all of the different diagrams in my workshop. So we do need to take care of ourself, our boundaries our own needs, and then we also need to be able to, as much as we can, take care of other people in whatever way is appropriate that doesn't sacrifice this. These have to happen at the same time, and then they overlap. And where that overlap happens, that's where you and how you take care of yourself supports and influences how you take care of other people. But what we end up doing is in codependency, us taking care of ourselves is also us trying to manipulate and force other people to do things or we go into hyper-independence where us taking care of ourselves, go fuck these people, who cares? Doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do I think that you can completely eradicate the experience and the influence of codependency? No. But do I think that you can move from a lifestyle that is defined as unhealthily codependent, where wherein you are reliant on someone else's dysfunction to give you meaning and purpose and drive? That's really the definition of codependency. People talk about the whole helping and giving and sacrificing and stuff, but codependent means to be dependent on someone else who is dependent on something else mm-hmm. it, that that term originates in AA so Dependency, yeah codependency is an AA term. It was coined by it was coined within AA groups to refer to the wives of alcoholics and how the wives of alcoholics, do not have lives anymore because they're only focused on the addiction of their husband Mm -hmm. instead of focused on the work their husband's doing, on the home their husband is still providing for, on their children, on their own hobbies, on their own friends. They're codependent. They need him to stay drunk or they don't have purpose. Mm -hmm. So moving out of codependency is to redefine ourselves as individuals with our own interests, with our own passions with our own unique set of personality traits, character traits, and values, while still being able to value and appreciate another person, their contribution, and their participation in our lives. And that's the path out of codependency. It's not this hyper-independent, tough love, screw you, not going to mess with you. That is an aspect of codependency, because in that perspective, you expect those people to change.
0: Right. Now, bringing it back to a family dynamic, I've mentioned on the podcast several times yeah. <laughs> that I do come from an alcoholic background. My, my dad was an alcoholic. My mom did not know how to handle it. And so she was extremely controlling with the kids and especially me since I was a girl. And, and we're my mom is from Mexico. We're Hispanic. And so the girl always has to be right next to the mom, Right. And it was just Mm -hmm. suffocating me and my escape was when I needed to help dad. And so bringing it back to the family dynamic, I did not want my children growing up like that with my first husband. And so I left him just because it wasn't working for me, you know, my Mm -hmm. way or the highway, so I thought, okay, Mm -hmm. well you're choosing the highway then I'm going to leave. And so that's what I did. And I kept my kids out of that and bringing it back to the family dynamic. What can we tell the mom who husband and wife, let's just continue with the example. It's the dad that's drinking and the children are watching and they're, maybe they're taking on that caretaker role where it's like, Hey, dad's passed out on the couch. Tell him to get up and eat something. Cause that's what I experienced. So I'm believing that a lot of people in a family dynamic like that, we're also helping dad or mom or whoever is the alcoholic in the home. How can we support the mother that's listening right now or the parent that's listening right now?
1: Yay. So the way we can support the mother that's listening, because I'm going to keep it, honestly, a majority of my clients are women. I have three male clients, but almost every single one of the people who reach out to me are wives or girlfriends of a man who struggles with alcohol. There are other addictions, there are other substances, there are other Mm -hmm. genders, there are other dynamics, but I do want to keep this focused on the wife because that is the most common, like so many orders of magnitude and I'm not going to pull up statistics, but it's pretty absurd how many more Al-Anon meetings are populated by women, right? right? And part of that is just by nature of that dynamic, like I talked about, there's a social dynamic of codependency within female social that really is there naturally. So the best thing that a mom in that situation can do is learn the skills to model to her children so that her children are not learning codependency from her, but her children are learning a compassionate, supportive approach to knowing or loving someone who struggles with an addiction. And this is whether or not they're in the home. Okay. whether they have to leave. If it gets to a point where there is abuse, where okay. there is a risk to the children, especially a physical risk, that there may also be situations in which there's verbal abuse that's going to be a developmental risk to the children. You need to take care of your children first. A mother's role is mother, right? right. We didn't say, I mean, we did say wife, but I'm going to talk about the mother because your role as a mother is to protect your children first. Right. So you do that first, but part of protecting your children is modeling to them the behavior that's going to support them in their lives. And it is healthy for them to learn how to interact with people who struggle with addiction. You are not going to raise a child who never confronts addiction. That's statistically impossible. Right. It is statistically impossible to raise a child that is shielded from the reality of addiction for their entire life. The only time that could ever happen is in the worst case scenario in which your child dies before they grow up. That's not the goal, right? Yeah. I know. <laughs> it's the only time. It's the yeah. only time you can save them. So you don't want to try to save them from experiencing addiction, you want to save them from experiencing dysfunction.
0: And then not only that, they're going to be adults a lot longer than they're going to be children. So while
1: children, it's the Teach them how to be adults. Yeah. Teach them how to be adults by being the adult in the room that knows how to respond to someone in addiction. So that when they have a friend who is struggling, they know what to say. They know how to show up. They know what not to do. They know what's helpful and unhelpful, and they don't end up slipping into codependent patterns. They never have to set foot in an Al-Anon meeting. And frankly, I'm look, I'm a terrible entrepreneur because I tell people that I don't want them back as clients. After you go through my program, I hope that you're done with me. I don't want you to have to come back. But that's the same thing. A mother of children with a father who struggles with addiction, her goal needs to be that those kids never end up in my program, mm-hmm. that those kids never need to learn that from me because they learned it from her. Mm-hmm. right? They learned the skills they need to be able to show up in their relationships in a way that helps everyone and supports them. And they learned that from their mom. A lot of times that's just not where people end up. This is a generational thing because like you've experienced when the mom is codependent, she teaches the kids that codependency. Yes. The kids end up growing up the same way. And that's, I mean, you've lived this. That's where you then end up in dynamics in relationships that have that same, those same markers, the same partner that struggles with an addiction, you struggling with codependency, you then having to make the tough decision to leave instead of having been given those skills that you could have been given if your mom had different circumstances. Um. Obviously, this isn't blaming. I want to make sure that we have that disclaimer. This doesn't blame anybody for not having the resources available. And that's exactly why I created my company is because we need these resources.
0: Yes, yes, we millions do. of
1: resources. people need these resources
0: because it's not available. So it's inadvertently the mother is teaching children how to become right. She yeah.
1: cannot know better. You only cannot she know, doesn't know what better, you yes. don't know. She and she can't know better because no one has taught her anything different. And the only opportunity she's given for any kind of support is either therapy with a therapist that doesn't have the extended qualifications to treat her, or Al-Anon, which doesn't have any qualifications at all. Aside from, what, longevity. Right. Right? Brand mm. recognition. Right. It's exactly. Like, I'm feeling dehydrated. What should I drink? Coca-Cola. It's a right. brand I know. No, that's right. probably the worst thing you could drink. Right, right. <laughs> Water. Oh it's out of the tap. <laughs> yeah.
0: I love how you're just, you're closing all the gaps.
1: <laughs> I love that. That's what I do. That's <laughs> what I do. I. That's funny you say that. That is something that I say. There are two different gaps when you love someone that, that is struggling with an addiction. You want to close the gap of disconnection between you so that you know it's faster to resolve those fights it's faster to resolve disagreements and then you want to widen the gap of incident so mm-hmm. you want fewer big blow-up moments and you want faster repair when they happen yes. so it's funny that you said filling in all the gaps because that's something that i talk about a lot
0: <laughs> well the because gap. you're doing it you're doing it well you know what tell me about your upcoming cohort coming up on the ninth. i think I saw so that. yeah
1: so So the way that enrollment inside my program, actually, if we can, if we have some time, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the program itself and what that looks like. Please do. Yeah.
0: Because I know that there are people listening right now that are thinking maybe that might be for me. So let's definitely dive into it.
1: So if you're thinking it maybe might be for you, the best thing you can do is schedule a call with me. The call is free. We talk about it. It'll be almost exactly like this podcast, except we'll be talking about your problems and your experiences and where you got to where you are and where you want to go. There's a very low pressure call where we just chat. And then at the end of the call, if you decide the program sounds like a good idea, then you can book a follow-up and then we can get you enrolled. So it's not a sales, it's not a sales call. I don't, I honestly this demographic does not need to be sold to. We all know, hey, I'm struggling. Give me some help. I don't need to be like, did you know that it would feel better if your life wasn't the way it is? I don't need to explain that to you. That's condescending. But my program is called Heal for Real. And it's called that because I've been in Al-Anon. I went to Al-Anon. I went to the recommended six meetings. I showed up to an Al-Anon meeting on the night that my partner had attempted suicide and was in a sober center holding cell where they were holding him. And then he ended up going to a 72 hour hold after that. I went to Alan on looking for help and advice and real support as to Mm -hmm. what could I do right now. And they told me, keep coming back. It works if you work it. They told me to say the serenity prayer. They told me to read a fucking book. (laughs) And I told them, he tried to kill himself today. Mm -hmm. This is serious. I need help. It was like in one ear out the other talking to a brick wall Mm -hmm. and that's why i created this program is because we need opportunities to actually do the work that we need to do as partners of someone in addiction so that we can learn the skills necessary to not have to go and ask someone for advice when there is a crisis moment because when you love someone in addiction crisis is guaranteed how you respond Mm -hmm. to it is subjective and it depends Mm -hmm. on how you learn and what you learn and how you bulk up in order to be able to shoulder that burden. There's a, there is a Jewish proverb that I really like, which is, I ask not for a lighter burden, but for stronger shoulders. And I love that. And that's really a foundational tenet to my program is giving us the skills to be able to shoulder what life has given us. There's no expectation that we're going to walk through life with sunshine and roses and no addiction and no grief and no sadness and no death and no loss. Tragedy strikes that is realistic. And if we can confront those chaotic, desperate, miserable moments with a sense of stability and calm and peace, then we're all the better for it. And so are the people in our lives. So that's what we work on inside the program. It's a six-month program. It is designed as a rehab for us, where we take on all of those issues that we've had. We unpack them We dig those old habits out at the root. We restructure them so that our lives are more stable. And then we start learning everything we can about addiction. We learn about the neuroscience of addiction. We learn attachment theory, how that affects our relationships. We learn our own relationship patterns and how we can rework those so that we can show up in a better way and have a healthy relationship regardless of their addiction. And then there's also sections in this program to focus on how we are thinking about and relating to reality and our lives. Because that's where a lot of us end up in miserable patterns, is we think that life shouldn't be the way that it is. And when we can get to a point where we understand that life is the way that it is, we accept it, and we do the do with it what we can, we do the best with it that we can, we can actually create beautiful situations for ourselves. We can create a beautiful life out of tragedy out of chaos. And so that's what the program is for. It is intensive. It is a lot of work, but it is so worth it. It is really rewarding for everyone involved. I love my client stories and their testimonials. I'm, my favorite moment is hearing when other people have that same conversation I got to have, the I'm proud of you conversation. Multiple mm-hmm. clients who are like, he said it. He said he was proud of me. I don't even know why. And it's like, yes, yeah, because you're doing the work. That's awesome. That's so mm-hmm. cool so if that's something that anyone listening needs if you need help with where you are with your loved one who struggles with an addiction with the way that you are interacting if you're if you find yourself escalating conflict still feeling angry still like we talked about it's so easy even if you can get them out of your life and that's not going to heal the anger it's not going to heal the resentment And it's not going to fix the pattern.
0: And I, I can testify. It does not. Once you leave, it does not end there. It's been 21 years. I'm still bringing it up. Mm-hmm. It's still affecting me. It's still affecting my children. And then my own story, it's still affecting my parents. So it's still affecting all of us. So no, it doesn't just go away. You grow up and okay, grow up, get out of it, move to another state. I moved to another state. It doesn't end. <laughs> You have to do the work and the work is always going to be hard. There's always going to be work. So as soon as you get going on it, the sooner you start, the better you'll feel, the faster you'll recover. Am I right?
1: Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Preach. That was it. That was exactly it. And you mentioned January 9th. So January 9th is when our next cohort starts, but we do monthly cohorts. So every month I am launching and onboarding more people. I say launching, but it's really just as I go through calls throughout the month, I put people into their groups and then your group starts at a certain date on the month. So. I keep these groups small. They are six-person groups. I don't go past six-person groups because I want everyone to have time inside of the group coaching sessions to actually be heard and be able to talk and connect with other people who are in the same situation as you. It gives you a tight-knit community of other people who are in the same situation as you and also working on it. So it's very different from Al-Anon because in Al-Anon, you don't know who you're talking to. In these groups, you know who you're talking to. You know their name. They're not anonymous. You know their partner's name. When their kid's birthdays are, you end up getting to know the people in your group And it's really a beautiful process of healing on so many different levels. So if this is something that you need, I'm sure that there will be a link somewhere to be able to find it. Or you can go to therecoveryrevolution.com is the easy place to go. It's spelled the way it's spelled. You can okay. See it right no, here. yeah. I'll definitely recovery link Revolution everything.
0: Yeah. I'll definitely link everything in the show notes, your website, your program. I think I'll, I'll, whatever you send me, I'll link it.
1: We have another free workshop coming up soon as well. I believe it's January 16th. So if people hear this before then we have, a we do our free workshop every month. The one that you mentioned the our role in recovery workshop, that is a monthly free workshop for anybody to learn more and get more of an in-depth. Understanding of this issue and actually do the work on your own situation. That's the fun part. There's a workbook, you get to work on it and look at your own life. And so, if that's something that appeals to you that you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you.
0: Well, I got to say, I am so thankful, Corey, that you have this program already dialed out, already ready to go for the people that really do need it because. There are so many loved ones that are dealing with it. And it's not just the partner, it's also the children, it's also the coworkers, it's also the best friends that have to walk away, it's the neighbors that have to see you sprawled out on the lawn that on the lawn, hey, <laughs> let me get you back inside. Right. It's the jobs that you lost, it's the, it's so many people that need this and they may not even know that they need this because they are going mm-hmm. to therapy, they're reading the books, they're going to al all, they're going to support groups, they're on Facebook groups, you know what I mean? And it's not the actual work because like you said, you don't need to relive the trauma. You just need to know how to deal with the triggers.
1: Yeah. Do you want to all give us a, an end cap to, to cap that off with some statistics if you want? Sure. Yeah, hit you, with some, hit you with some facts. All right. So you mentioned, we've talked about venting a few different times. This is something anybody can Google. Google emotional effects of venting. There have been multiple studies on this and cross analysis about what effect venting has on our emotional state. And studies have shown that venting is damaging to long-term emotional health. Now, I'm going to contextualize that fact with another one that is out of the Al Anon membership survey from 2018. Al Anon members have, on average, attended meetings for 14 years. What do you think that does to your mental health when you are in a group that is mostly founded on venting and you do that for 14 years? Does that heal you? It just doesn't. It it
0: feels like it keeps you there,
1: like it's day one. It's day one over and over. It's Groundhog's Day. It's Groundhog Day, yes. Yeah. That was what turned me off of Al-Anon, honestly, was going and seeing the people who'd been there for 20 years. That was enough evidence for me that this is a religion and not a support group. I already have my religion. I don't need,
0: I don't need Al-Anon. No, yeah, I'm for it. Yeah, I agree with you.
1: (laughs) Approximately 21 million Americans struggle with addiction. Now, assuming each person has had five relationships, friends, family, romantic partners, etc., that are close enough for them to affect emotionally, that means there are roughly 105 million people who have been emotionally affected by another person's addiction and need support and healing that actually works. That number, yeah, 105 million, that is actually more than anxiety and depression combined. Those are the two most prevalent mental health issues that people go and seek therapy and support for. There are more people affected by this issue. It is one of the largest demographics that is untreated. And unsupported in mental health.
0: Wow. Yeah. That is a lot. And I know from my own experience from going and trying to get the help and getting re-referred out. I just don't think that therapists know how to deal with this. Unless they unless they're licensed or certified themselves. And even specifically then specifically in that, yeah. Yeah. And even then it they'll still refer you out. Mm-hmm.
1: That's another statistic. That's another statistic that 41% of LMN members are referred to the program by a therapist. Al-Anon uses that statistic as like a bolster. Like, oh, hey, look, therapists refer to us. Not a bragging right. It means therapists are more incompetent than a volunteer-led support group. That's an indictment of therapy. It's an oh indictment of therapy. I that never thought of, are of it that way. referring people to Al-Anon. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah, it's not I never good.
0: thought of it that way. But yeah, it, eye-opening. I'm telling you.
1: <laughs> yeah. You said i fill in the gaps. That's what I'm yeah. filling in. I'm like, wait I a second. Do. This plus this equals bad. Yeah. Why are you saying it's good? It's, hang on guys. I am the canary in the coal mine for this industry. I'm pretty sure.
0: Just, and yeah. I think that's why comedians make it so, so good to listen to because you guys are able to take the serious, bring it out to look how ridiculous it is. And then yeah. the audience is like, oh, so fun. funny. Ridiculous.
1: And <laughs> with this one, it's not funny because it's killing millions of people. Oh, and that's a problem. It's
0: so. not, especially since Oops. I've experienced it. So
1: <laughs> Sorry, I made it all sad because people die when we don't do it right. Yeah. I mean, I part of my experience that I didn't mention, in my background is I had a best friend who went suicide at 21, dealt with addiction for years the entire time that I knew him and the mental health industry was not helpful. The mental health industry exacerbated the problem for him and that was an experience that was pretty eye-opening for me realizing how little like functional support there was for people who needed help. I remember he, he also, so here's another cycle. This is another partner who had been put on a, on a hold at a psychiatric hospital. This one actually did kill himself, but this was a decade before. So that's me breaking the pattern. Now they don't kill themselves. It's great. But <laughs> yeah, see, hilarious. Um, like so not he, too <laughs> Right. Well, no, laugh. It's fine. It's funny. He was held at a psychiatric hospital for seven days. He was on a seven-day hold. It was bad enough he was on a seven-day hold. And while he was there, his doctor called me to ask me about him because he wasn't sharing in therapy. Called me to ask, is there anything we need to know? Is there anything we can know that could help him? And I told them, I said, look, I know this guy like the back of my hand. I know the stuff he's not going to tell you and the stuff he needs help with. If I tell you, will you wait until he says something about that to let him out? Will you wait until he gets to these things to let him out? Wait until he talks about it, because if he's not talking about it, that means he's not taking this seriously. That means he's not ready to be out. That means he's going to go right back out here. He's going to kill himself. If you don't wait for him to share these things, you haven't gotten to the root of his problem yet. I know his problem. I live with him. I'm his best friend. Please wait until he says this stuff. They said, okay, what are we? What do we need to listen for? What do we need to know about him? And I told them, because I was a naive 21-year-old at the time, and I thought that by telling them, it would help the situation. I thought that by telling them what I knew and what he needed help working through, that they would then be informed and able to wait until he shared what he needed to share to listen and support him toward getting the help he needed. I was ignorant at the time. shared with them what they needed to know about him, his childhood trauma, the things that were constantly eating at him, his innermost feelings that contributed to him wanting to kill himself which i knew he'd struggled with for a long time they got off the phone with me they said thank you we'll help him he'll be okay i find out when was it i find out very shortly after that they told him at the hospital and then i find out the night he kills himself that them telling him that i told them about him made him feel unsafe to be at that hospital and receive the help he needed. Oh, wow. The hospital itself betrayed the trust of someone that needed their help. They betrayed the trust of someone else trying to help that person who wasn't comfortable sharing. And instead of everyone working together and saying, hey, what's the stuff this guy needs help with? Let's help him with this stuff. The first thing they did after they got off that call was go to him and say, hey, We talked to your best friend and she said, this, 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 is that true? And he said, no, because he didn't want to talk about it because he didn't want help. He wanted to kill himself. That's the thing about mentally ill people. Mm -hmm. It's the exact same thing with addiction. Addiction is a form of slow suicide. You put an addict in a hospital and you ask them about their trauma. They'll say, I don't have any trauma. I just need to go home. It was a misunderstanding. They go home, they use, they overdose, they die. That's what happens. And it's because we as a society are so fucking dense. That we can't learn how to hear. We don't want to learn how to connect with people. We don't want to learn how to listen for cues of, oh, hey, this is a person that's ready. This is a person that's not. We take everything at face value instead of being curious about what's going on, instead of wanting to help from a family dynamic perspective. And that's why I help the partners. Mm -hmm. The partners are the ones that are there that can actually have these conversations. The hospitals are not going to help. The rehabs are not going to help. Seems they like
0: do not help it's very outdated the information and the help and the therapy that they do it's very outdated yeah, it is it's i don't know
1: it's just well and it's sad but there's money in it so they can't update yeah right <laughs> this is where we get into the political conversation there's and, money in and it. we forget update. that right it's like we, we know forget it, but that, we forget <laughs> hey why aren't they being compassionate because it doesn't pay them enough money to be compassionate yeah, that's so sad yep that's the sad part well, the wild thing to me the very weird thing to me It could pay them money to be compassionate. They knew how to structure their system correctly. They were structuring their system so that they got paid for, you know, recovery, success, et cetera. If if insurance paid out for people who were no longer in need of that mental health help, right? If there was like a bonus, like, hey, therapist, if you can cure this person of their suicidal depression, we will pay you extra. Right. Because then we don't have to pay for them for the rest of their lives. The insurance companies could do something about this. By shifting their priority from just treating as little as they can right. to solving the problem and recognizing that as being an overall uh, like money saver, because it would be, to get right. more people out of the healthcare system. It could get paid off by the insurance company that could yeah. say, good, now we have a healthy person and we don't have to worry about them.
0: Yeah. yeah. Like I said, I have that double whammy where my son is schizophrenic and tried to self-medicate. And... there there just isn't, there just isn't help for that. And the people that are there, they're so jaded. They don't care. They're like, whatever we offered this. And he said, no. So, okay. And it's just, it's so there is no compassion. And like (laughs) I said, that's what we've been taught to do. Well, it's your choice. If you don't want it, you can be on your own. And there just, there has to be a new, better way and Hopefully your program is the better way. My hope
1: for not just this podcast, but like everything that I ever do and talk about is that it hits enough ears and enough people hear enough pieces of it. Because my biggest struggle with this entire mission, I could call it a business, but it feels more like a mission with this Mm -hmm. whole mission is the fundamental re-education necessary, which because you, I mean, you Mm -hmm. went to my workshop. That's a, hey, everything you know, upside down. Can you accept it? And can we move forward with that? And that's hard to do. It is really hard. And the yeah, amount of Al-Anon people that will come and attack me, <laughs> like, yeah. I, yeah, I attract a certain kind of troll and they don't, <laughs> they, yeah, they don't like what I'm saying. And because Al-Anon is this tight knit community, they're very defensive of that process. And it's just, it's huge. One, one lady against a big, a big industry. And it's not just Al-Anon, it's the healthcare industry it's the rehab, it's okay. the recovery industry. It's so many things, All so it, yeah. it's big. And so, yeah, I was really excited when you asked me to be on this because I have part of my new year's resolution is YouTube podcasts. It's really just like appearances showing Mm -hmm. up is my big thing is not just drowning in the admin work, but like me showing up as me talking about this. Cause I've realized that's the only way that people can be converted or convinced or understand anything. Mm -hmm. have to hear it from me. I can't just be like, I can't send them a DM and they figure it out. Right.
0: Yeah. No, your voice is powerful too very powerful. Thank you. It's my job. Like I said, I was very excited. These are topics that I talk about a lot. And I was looking at it. I'm like, I don't want to be an addiction. I just don't. don't." But Mm -hmm. the aftermath is emotional abuse, if not physical, you know, if not worse. Right. And it always starts with emotional and thank God with my dad, there, there wasn't physical. It was just verbal. Right. And
1: the, and, but the thing about that is verbal. I mean, Verbal abuse and it leaves can have as bad a problem. Yeah, it yeah. leaves scars, but it all verbal abuse can lead to you f- physically abusing yourself, right? So, I mean, eating disorders, addiction, self-harm, they're all Mm -hmm. forms of self-harm, right? And they all come from this inner voice that came from mom or dad telling you that you're worthless in in one way or another. I mean, how many of those like sentences do we all have that just sit on our brain and we believe them? And that's the big difference is do they sit, do they float around in your brain and you hear them and you say, hello, thought that is there, or do you hear it? And then you think it's part of truth. That's that's where in my program, that's where we get into the metaphysical, philosophical side of things is the nature of truth. What is true? And what of our thoughts do we need to put any stock in? Because that's a huge one is with codependency, we will run down a train of thought and just be like, this is the train I'm on. It's going fast, but it's, it, there's the bridge is out. So you sure? Yeah. Is that where you yeah. want to end up? Well, we'll keep going on that train because it's fast. And <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. I've also noticed there's a, there's a link that I've seen so far between codependency and ADHD symptoms.
0: Okay. Yeah. I'm starting to see that as well, where ADHD, it's on onset on adults now. And it's from all that trauma that we're experiencing and we're then just we go. just go, yeah, mm-hmm. we're avoiding it. We're going, and once you get to
1: relax, you're like, well, I'm
0: not relaxed. There's something going mm-hmm. on. I need to do something. Like I got to something. Yeah.
1: I need something stressful. I need something physical stimulating because I'm only used to negative stimulation. So I need stimulation in general. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it really, what it does is it re, I say what it does. I am not a neuroscientist. I am just a person with ideas who fills in gaps. I'm pretty sure the childhood trauma can affect neurogenesis it affects the way that your brain develops it affects the way that your brain like functions as a child obviously you experience certain things and you are going to receive different neurochemical reinforcements for those experiences so if as a child you're experiencing a lot of that the trauma the survival etc and as a child the only time that you feel a relief from those things is from the childhood oriented pleasure which is dopamine, that's gonna be like watching TV, eating snacks, getting a new toy. What does that become as an adult? It becomes addiction, overconsumption, and overspending. Mm -hmm. Compulsive habits that fuel you, not fuel like addiction. They fuel you. They keep you going. Well, I'm miserable right now. So I need to shop. I'm going to get on Amazon. I'm going to scroll Instagram. I'm going to do something extra so that I make sure that I have dopamine because obviously I'm not going to get serotonin. I'm not going to be able to work towards a goal and feel good about it. I'm not going to be able to get the positive reinforcement for doing my chores that a normal child should have. I'm going to do the chore because I have to, because I'm being parentified. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's not, that doesn't teach you how to Take care of yourself. It teaches you how to sacrifice yourself. Yeah. There's a big yeah. difference.
0: True. So, where can my audience find you?
1: They can find me on Instagram at the Recovery Revolution. Keep the in there. The is in there every time. So, at the Recovery Revolution. They can find me at therecoveryrevolution.com. They can find me on Facebook. Facebook is really just uh, repurposed Instagram content. I will tell you the truth <laughs> there. I'm not a big Facebook person, but if you don't have Instagram and you want to see the stuff that I post on Instagram, you can follow me. It is facebook.com/ the recovery Revolution group. it's a little different one but the best way to find me is the website TheRecoveryRevolution.com or Instagram is where I post honestly the most frequently. I will. Be getting my youtube started this year that's a new year's resolution i'm getting the youtube going i already have one but it's just i post on it sporadically so that'll well, be more consistent
0: honestly your instagram your content on there is so great i do encourage everyone listening please go on her instagram i will link it up great information there
1: yes thank you i'll see you there well thank Keep you, you so much <laughs> thank you
0: so much Corey.
1: thank you veronica